Judges 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The eleven hundred shekels of silver that were taken from you, and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the eleven hundred shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. Judges 18. In those days, Israel had no king. And in those days, the tribe of of the Danites was seeking a place of their own, where they might settle, because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. So the Danites sent five of their leading men from Zorah and Eshtael to spy out the land and explore it. These men represented all the Danites. They told them, go explore the land. So they entered the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah, where they spent the night. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. So they turned him there and asked him, Who brought you here? What are you doing this place? Why are you here? He told them what Micah had done for them. And he said, He has hired me, and I am his priest. Then they said to him, Please inquire of God to learn whether our journey will be successful. The priest answered them, Go in peace. Your journey has the Lord's approval. So the five men left and came to Laish, where they saw that the people were living in safety like the Sidonians, at peace and secure. And since their land lacked nothing, they were prosperous. Also they lived a long way from the Sidonians and had no relationship with anyone else. When they returned to Zorah and Ashtel, their fellow Danites asked them, How did you find things? They answered, Come on, let's attack them. We have seen the land, and it is very good. Aren't you going to do something? Don't hesitate to go there and take it over. When you get there, you will find an unsuspecting people and a spacious land that God has put into your hands, a land that lacks nothing whatever. When the 600 men of the Danites, armed for battle, set out from Zorah Neshtel, on their way they set up camp near Kiriath Yarim in Judah. This is why the place west to Kiriath Yarim 
is called Mahanedan to this day. From there, they went onto the hill country of Ephraim and came to Micah's house. When the five men who had spied out the land of Laish said to their fellow Danites, Do you know that one of these houses has an ephod, some household gods, and an image overlaid with silver? Now you know what to do. So they turned in there and went to the house of the young Levite at Micah's place and greeted him. The 600 Danites, armed for battle, stood at the entrance of the gate. The five men who had spied out the land went inside and took the idol, the ephod, the household gods, while the priest and the 600 armed men stood at the entrance of the gate. When the five men went into Micah's house and took the idol, the ephod, and the household gods, the priest said to them, What are you doing? They answered him, Be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and clan and Israel as priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people, putting their little children, their livestock, and their possessions in front of them, they turned away and left. When they had gone some distance from Micah's house, the men who lived near Micah were called together and overtook the Danites. As they shouted after them, the Danites turned and said to Micah, What's the matter with you? <coughs> Excuse me. What's the matter with you that you called out your man to fight? He replied, You took the gods I made, and my priest, and went away. What else do I have? How can you ask what's the matter with you? The Danites answered, Don't argue with us, or some of the men may get angry and attack you, and you and your family will lose your lives. So the Danites went their way, and Micah, seeing that they were too strong for him, turned round and went back home. Then they took what Micah had made, and his priest, and went on to Laish, against people at peace and secure. They attacked them with the sword and burned down their city. There was no one to rescue them because they lived a long way from Sidon and had no relationship with anyone else. The city was in a valley near Beth Rehob. The Danites rebuilt the city and settled there. They named it Dan after their ancestor Dan, who was born to Israel, though the city used to be called Laish. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were, the, were priests for the tribe of Dad until the time of the captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah 
called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Thanks, Henry. Okay, well, one of the recent trends in baby names is the rise of the unique name. Some slides here. Uh, I don't know if you can see these. Um, a quick jump onto nameberry.com gives you this list. Uh, we've got Tansy, Lazarus, Panda. These are excellent names. I endorse every single one of these names. They're great. Um, but it's really common now. You want a name that no one else has, a completely unique name. And it's fashionable now in a way that wasn't true about 100 years ago. Have a look at this graph. Okay, I don't know how much you can make this out. Um, in 1950 here, you had about 6,000 names each year that were for girls that were unique, just one-of-a-kind names. And that, over the years, over the decades, has risen to about 20,000 in, uh, uh, in the kind of 2010s. Uh, that's one way to kind of chart it. Another is this. Um, get this, 1880, so however long ago that is, the top four boys' names were John... William, James, and George. And those four names accounted for one in four boys. 25% had one of those four names. You meet a stranger, just roll the dice, uh, go, go for John or Bill, and you know, odds are on your side. Isn't that amazing? But if you take the stats from 2012, the top four boys' names were Jacob, Mason, Ethan, and Noah, and they accounted for one in 26 boys. And look, right, I can hardly talk. Uh, (laughs) We named our children Kipling, Rigby, Persephone, and Dorothy. Dorothy is the most standard name there, and her middle name is Sunday. And so look, I'm not criticising. I I endorse the, uh, the interesting name. But it does tell us something about... Uh, our culture. Our culture values things being unique. We want things to be special, tailored just for us. Uh, We like one-of-a-kind things, small-batch things. We like Etsy crafts. There's nothing else like it. The thing we value is self-expression. We like things to be done our way. Unique self-expression. We want it in our clothes. We want it in our sexuality. And we want it in our spirituality as well. And that's what's going on here in Judges 17 and 18. Unique self-expression in their spiritual lives. All of them going about it however they please. And so tonight, Judges wants to sound a warning to us about the danger of choosing your own adventure when it comes to God. So let's dig in. Uh, Chapter 17 marks a new section in the book of Judges. We leave behind the Judges and that cycle of sin and deliverance uh, throughout the rest of the book. And instead, we get this series of events from chapters 17 to 21. And they kind of form like an epilogue to the book. And there's a new focus. So let me show you. Uh, Four times spaced throughout these chapters, we get this repeated phrase. Uh, In those days, Israel had no king. And then twice it adds, everyone did as they saw fit. You can kind of see the pattern there. And it was 
kind of like saying this, look, this is what life was like without a king. Everyone went and just kind of went their own way. They did their own thing. And so in between these, uh, these key repeated phrases, as it goes through, we get these awful, uh, messed up, kind of confused, chaotic stories. But the interesting thing about these chapters is it doesn't really tell you what to think. And if you noticed that as we were reading through, it just kind of lays out the story. It's very hard to tell if, if we're meant to think this is good or is this bad. You know, what does God think of this? It kind of just gives you the facts. In those days, Israel had no king. It's just how it was. And so we're going to try and work out uh, what to think of these stories as they're pieced together. And we're going to uh, walk through the three main players, uh, Micah, the Levite, and then the Danites. Micah, the Levite, then the Danites. I'm going to see what happens. Okay, so first, uh, let's have a look at Micah. Let's leave aside, just to begin with, the fact that he steals from his mum. Let's ignore that. Have a look at verse 5. Now, this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. His mum gives him this idol, but it looks like he's already got a pretty nice setup going on. He's got a shrine, he's got an ephod, he's got some household gods, some little gods for, for protection and blessing. Uh, and he's even kind of got his son in there working as a priest. But there is an awful irony about this whole setup. His name is Micah. And Micah means who is like God. That's what his name means. It's the name you give to your child when you want them and everyone else around them to know that there is no other God. There is none like him. Who is like God? And yet Micah is the one setting up this place to bow down to idols. And it's all explicitly against what God has told them about how he's to be worshipped. They are to have no other gods beside Yahweh. They're meant to make no other image. Or here in Deuteronomy 12, here's what Deuteronomy 12 says, Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. See, there we go. God doesn't allow freestyling when it comes to worship. The Israelites weren't allowed to set up lots of different places of worship to make sacrifices and, and to come and meet with God. They weren't to have all these different places because there's only one God, which means one place of worship. But for Micah, it's all about what he wants to do. He wants his own unique self-expression. He wants worship at his own convenience. But what do we expect? Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, it's easy to criticise Micah, but remember, we don't like conformity either. Don't we have kind of the same problem in the modern world in terms of how we think about God? You hear things like, oh, I like to think God wouldn't exclude anyone from heaven if they kind of just did their best. Well, I think there's, there's aspects of God in lots of different religions. 
Isn't that kind of the same attitude? I'll decide how I worship God. I'll decide what he's like. And and I'll decide what he wants from me. See, we don't craft idols physically out of silver. But we do fashion the idea of God into the shape that we like it. We need to hear the warning of this chapter for ourselves. God isn't like going to Subway where you just kind of pick and choose the toppings that you like. That's as foolish as Micah. No, God says what he's like. God says how he is to be worshipped. Now, the other problem with Micah is the way he thinks about God. So his religion is all about him. This Levite comes along and he hires him straight away. He's like, great, you know, a Levite is the real deal. Uh, like a real priest to have as his own. It's, it's too good an opportunity to pass up. I mean, he obviously has to fire his son. Never mind that. Uh, he just goes for it, right? He wants the glory of having a real life Levite. See, this religious stuff is all about his reputation, how it makes him look. And he seems to think that that works for God too. Have a look at verse 13. It says this, uh, and Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. See, this Levite's like a good luck charm to him. He thinks God's like a vending machine. You just put the right number of coins in and out comes the blessing. We should be screaming as we read this. It's like, Micah, what are you doing? How can you think that God is like this? Like one of your tiny idols. The God who made everything. Micah, your name is who is like God. How did you get to this point? You've got a gun for hire Levite coming in and you think that God's going to be good to you while you bow down to these idols? But what do we expect? Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But look at how all of this just comes crashing down around Micah. Look how crushing it is for him. The Danites come and they steal his stuff. Right? They, they steal his priest and the idols and all the things. And look at how he reacts uh, there in the next chapter, 18, uh, verse 24. He replied, you took the gods I made and my priest and went away. What else do I have? What else do I have? His whole identity is, is caught up in all this stuff, his reputation. You take that away, what is he? He's got nothing left. Everything about him was was caught up in this pseudo-temple, being the guy with the shrine and and the genuine Levite. And it all comes crashing down. Because they're not real gods. Micah, you said it. They're the gods I made. You just made them. You can't rely on them. Now, we might see Micah as being ridiculous. But don't we have the same attitude sometimes? When our our pride and our identity get caught up, uh, not in Jesus, but in religious stuff, in the stuff that we do. What else do I have if I'm not on the CU committee? 
That feels like I'm singling people out, but honestly, that's like half of you here. Uh, <laughs> but what else do I have, right? If I don't have some kind of position of importance, if, if, if I'm not serving on the kids' ministry or the youth ministry, if I'm not someone at, at church, what else do I have? See, it's possible to make idols out of that stuff, the stuff that we do out of our reputation and our identity, to love our, our performance instead of the simple privilege of knowing Jesus. That's Micah. Uh, Next we come to the Levite. Uh, The Levites didn't have their own allotment of land in Canaan, and so this Levite is is on the move. He's a cowboy. He's a mercenary. And uh, so he comes, and he comes upon Micah's house, and notice he's not shocked or upset that Micah's got a fake temple full of idols, and it feels like that's what he's looking for. He's looking for a gig, a place to stay. See, the worship of Yahweh is about what he can get out of it. Money, security, a roof over his head. That's what he wants. And you can tell that that's what he's after because as soon as he gets a better offer, he's straight out of there, right? The Danites come by uh, there in verse 19. And they answered him, be quiet, don't say a word. Come with us, be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as priests rather than just one man's household? The, the Danites come past and, and they're in the, the middle of stealing the gear and the Levite's there, he, he belongs to, to Micah. He's kind of like Micah is his master, but he sees them stealing the gear. He should really be blowing the whistle, Right? But they're like, oh, shh, just keep quiet. Come with us. And he's like, yeah, that's a better deal. I'll go with you guys. In fact, he's the one who takes the stuff in the end. He carries it out of there. The Levite is just in it for himself. He's a complete mercenary. Now, it feels like we would never take that attitude to our faith, would we? There is no way we would be that shallow to just make Christianity about what I can get out of it. We would never go to church just for, just for friends, just to make friends. We'd never be here just for a great supper, would we? we you wouldn't, no. We'd, we'd never jump from church to church until we kind of find someone we can go out with. We would, no, we wouldn't do that. We're not like that. We, we wouldn't exploit church for personal benefit, would we? I kind of mock. But it's worth pausing and kind of just having that little stinging critique a little bit. I don't think that's a problem here at Uni Church. I actually think that you should have friends at church. You should try and make friends at church. And you should look for someone to marry from church. That's a great idea. But we need to hear the warning. If that's all it's about, if you're just in it for what's, what's good for you, then that is just fake religion. That's just doing what this Levite does. He's just in it for himself. But what do we expect? Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Finally, the Danites. Uh, Have a look there in chapter 18. Uh, Right at the start, it says, kind of lays out what's happening with the Danites. In those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking a place of their own where they might settle 
because they had not yet come into an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. See, what's happening, uh, Judges covers this period of time when Israel were, were taking hold of the promised land from the Canaanites. And the problem for the Danites uh, wasn't that they didn't have a place. It's that they didn't take their place that God had promised them. Uh, the problem was their own faithlessness. They hadn't trusted God and driven the people out where they were meant to. And so they don't have anywhere. And they go off looking for a new place. And I don't know if you noticed as, as we were reading through, I wanted to kind of read through the whole thing to get a sense of it because the whole episode follows the same kind of pattern as when Israel first spied out the land. Uh, after the Exodus, Moses is, is leading God's people into the Promised Land and they do the exact same uh, process. They send out spies who have a look around the land and they bring a report back about how it's a good land, flowing with milk and honey and all this kind of thing. And the Danites follow the same pattern. But this time it's like a dark parody of that. It's like a, a kind of twisted, messed up conquest because it's different. This isn't the place that God has promised them. This is some other place that they've found themselves. And the people in Laish are peaceful and unsuspecting. And the Danites are like, great, let's burn them. This isn't God's righteous judgment anymore. This this isn't the Danites taking hold of what God's promised them. This is just their selfishness. And guess what? It all goes perfectly. It goes perfectly. At the first conquest, the spies that go into the land, they're, they're too scared to enter. Uh, they don't trust God. But the Danite spies, they're super confident. They're like, yeah, let's do this. They're very happy to trust themselves. And they take the city and they settle in the land and it's all great for the people of Dan. They get it all. It's kind of hard to hear, isn't it? And we do almost need to stop and think about that, don't we? Because the same thing can happen to us. You know, sometimes life goes great. Actually fantastic. You win. You get the job. You know, you find a husband, you buy a house. You know, you buy a house at just the right time and the property market booms and, and suddenly you've got all this money and you get good health all the way to retirement and then you get to go on space cruises or whatever you guys will do when you're 75. I imagine that will just be part and parcel of life. And you kick back and you enjoy it because you win. But that does not mean that God endorses your life. That does not mean that God endorses your life. See, the Danites win. Their life's great. They find a place. They've got a Levite with them. It's, it's all fine. But they are not right with God. Prosperity now doesn't mean that God is on your side. Have a look at how chapter 18 finishes. Have a look at verse 30. There the Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the, tan of the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. There's the hint. 
There's the writer telling you what he really thinks. These priests continued until the time of the captivity of the land. I'm just going to mention that event, that little time marker there. See, they do face God's judgment, the captivity of the land. There is a reckoning. The captivity in the exile is because of Israel's idolatry and their unfaithfulness. This has come about because of what Dan continued to do. And look at the final comment there, verse 31. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time. The house of God was in Shiloh. See, that's where they should have been worshipping. The house of God was right there. They're worshipping at the house of Micah. But they should have been worshipping at the house of God. But the Danites just suit themselves. What do we expect? Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Well, what have we seen tonight? Uh, We've taken a long, hard look at this kind of self-made religion, this uh, unique self-expression. When we treat God the way that we treat baby names, where we just want something unique that fits us. But this repeated line draws attention to the problem. Israel had no king. It's trying to say, look, if there was a strong king in place, one who knew the law and kept the law, uh, who knew how to properly worship God, then they would fix the problem. If there was a king who led the people in proper worship of God, then we wouldn't have these idols and fake temples and everyone going off on their own way. And that is kind of true. Uh, Not long after this, King David does set up Jerusalem. He establishes that as the the centre of worship, the one place of worship in Israel. And he tears down the idols. But, you know, you read on in the Old Testament and that doesn't last. The kings fail and they go back to worshipping other gods. And the Old Testament finishes still looking for this ultimate king, the one who will lead God's people back to true and proper worship. See, we need a better king, a true king, who will lead us to true worship. And that's what we get in Jesus. If you've got a Bible open, flick there uh, to John chapter 4, to the passage that we had read earlier. Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman and they're discussing exactly this problem. What's the right way to worship God? The Samaritans are people who say that you need to worship at this mountain. But the the Jews said it had to be at Jerusalem. And and so the the right place to worship God is, is kind of in focus. But Jesus says, no, proper worship isn't about the place. It has to be worship in spirit and in truth. And in this conversation, the woman says, yeah, that's right. The Messiah will explain all this to us. The, the, The Messiah will sort this out. Now, Messiah is the Hebrew word for king. It means anointed one. She's saying, yeah, when there's a king, a a true king, they'll lead us in in true worship. And Jesus says, yeah, 
That's me. That's what I've come for. He is the true king to lead people in true worship because he himself is the way to worship God. Jesus is the one who brings the spirit. Jesus is the one who comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus says you have to worship in the spirit and truth and he means you have to worship in him. He is the focus of worship. Not a place, not a temple, not an idol, but in him. He is the one who reveals what God is like. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. If we want to know God, if we want to worship God, it has to be through Jesus. And so our Christian life has to be focused on him. That's exactly what Brenton said at the start of the night. And those verses that he read out, about being rooted in Christ and built up in him. That's exactly right. That's what the Christian faith is about. Our Christian life needs to be focused on him. Our behaviour, our lives need to imitate him. Being a Christian can't be about your own unique self-expression. That's not it. It is about conformity, even though we don't like that word, right? It's about conformity to Christ. To who he is. Because he's the one who shows us what God is like and what it means to worship him rightly. So how well do you know Christ? How well do you know Christ? How well do you know his life? All that he's done for you? How well do you know what pleases him? What he asks of you in the way that you live your life? How much do you know about what it's like to be like him, to follow in his footsteps, to imitate him? See, Jesus is the way to avoid idolatry. The way to avoid making church all about you and all about your preferences or your own reputation. Jesus is the way to avoid making church just about what I can get out of it. Because our focus is on him. And if our Christian life is focused on Christ, on following him, then that will lead us to true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship that honours God with all of our lives.